program is brought to you by UCL, London's global university. Well, thank you very much, Paul, and it's a pleasure to have the opportunity to speak to you today. Um, this talk will be about the role of computing, particularly high-performance computing, in developing models, not just in chemistry, but in other areas, because the, the ability of uh, computers to develop accurate and increasingly reliable models for complex systems has been one of the major developments in science in the last uh, 30, 40 years. Um, it's a recent development, but it's a recent development that relates to one of the oldest of scientific activities, and that is model building, because models, model building is, is as old as scientific uh, thought. Uh, what I'm showing you here is the Ptolemaic model of the universe, a very beautiful model, this is a real physical model, just an illustration here. Uh, developed in the ancient world, and a, a successful model. This model helped to rationalize many of the astronomical observations uh, that were available in the ancient world. And of course, that model was swept away uh, by the heliocentric Copernican model uh, in the 16th century. But it illustrates the fact that scientists have need model, have needed models since the very beginning of scientific thought. So, these are areas in which we use computers uh, to build models. It's not an exhaustive list, uh, but it il illustrates how broadly computational modeling is now used in science. Cosmological modeling, absolutely key uh, area of contemporary cosmology, not an area that I have expertise in. Atmosphere, ocean, and climate modeling, uh, a great deal of what we are predicting about the evolution of the Earth's climate uh, derives from sophisticated computer models. Geophysical models, I'll give you an example uh, in a few minutes. Aerodynamic modeling, absolutely key to the uh, aviation industry. Uh, epidemiological models, again, absolutely vital in the field of public health. And then my own speciality that I'll speak about later on, uh, the development of models for molecules and materials. So what do we do in computer modeling? Well, it, it's, a, anyway, it's an interesting kind of conceptual area. Uh, we use very basic scientific knowledge, for example, gravitation, our knowledge of gravitation, quantum mechanics, which um, is, is the basic knowledge of how electrons behave in atoms and molecules. Uh, hydrodynamics, we'll give examples later on. So we use this basic knowledge to construct models convert complex real systems. And you can think of it as the converse of reductionism. Reductionism was a, a, an absolutely key uh, discovery, as it were, in scientific thought. The idea there is you strip nature down to its very essentials and pick out the fundamental underlying principles. Science has been very successful in that respect, so we can now use these fundamental underlying principles with the immense processing power of computers, as I say, to construct uh, models of complex real systems. And so it's an integral part of contemporary physical, biological, medical sciences and engineering, as my previous slide showed. So what's the motivation? Well, the first motivation, model building, I've already discussed. Uh, scientists need models to help them understand uh, the complex systems which they're attempting to uh, whose, whose behavior uh, they're attempting to fathom. So model building, very, very broad, a general need. But here are some more specific ones. Uh, computer models can be very valuable sources now of numerical data. Uh, for example, a great deal of what we know about impurities, defects in semiconductors that control their behavior, key materials in 
uh, the contemporary world that comes from computer modeling. Inaccessible systems, I'm going to give you an example in a few moments of beautiful applications here from UCL of computer modeling helping us to understand the Earth's core, which most certainly is an inaccessible system. And then perhaps most ambitiously, we use computer modeling to predict, to predict new systems and phenomena. And again, I hope to give you an example uh, later on. So, we're going to have some grand challenges. UCL is a great place for grand challenges. Here are four, not the UCL grand challenges, but the grand challenges that I'm going to uh, discuss in a few moments. We're going to look very briefly at how computers have been used to model star formation. We're going to come down in length and time scales. Then we'll look at modeling the Earth's core that I've already referred to. Then modeling turbulent flow, key area in engineering, and then at the end, my own speciality of modeling materials at the molecular level. Well, let's just look pictorially at uh, the first challenge, modeling star formation. And here I'm going to highlight fantastic work from Kinwa Wu from our Department of Space and Climate Physics at UCL. And essentially what we're doing here is applying hydrodynamics at the galactic scale. And I'll just show you a couple of images. In fact, these were supposed to be movies, but in some ways, they're more effective as single, image, as single images. And what these are showing are the early stages of condensation of a gas cloud of galactic dimensions into stars. So that's it. the scales here in length and time are enormous, but this model begins to gives us insight into the early stages of this condensation process. I could show you lots of examples here of these beautiful images. This is another one uh, where after which a, uh, a, a essentially a jet of, uh, of um, gas has come from the center of the galaxy and again we're beginning to see this condensation into star formation. Talk to Kinwa if you want to learn more about this fantastic area, but it's showing you modeling here is getting to grips with this, as it were, cosmological, um, astronomical event would be more accurate. Now let's go on to my second example, and that's, we come down a little bit in the length scales here, to modeling the Earth's core. And again, here I'll be highlighting fantastic work here at UCL, Dario Alpha, Mike Gillen, uh, David Price, and Lidonka Bacadlo in the Department of Earth Sciences. Now what they're doing here is they're applying quantum mechanics to allow us to understand key aspects of the behavior of the Earth's core. Uh, quantum mechanics, as I said, is the basic theory of how electrons behave in atoms, molecules, and solids, and they're applying this knowledge with the help of enormous computer processing power to help us, I say, answer key questions about the Earth's core. This is part of a larger program uh, led by Dario Alpha, uh, joint between the Department of Earth Sciences and Physics, applying quantum mechanical techniques to study materials under immense conditions of temperature and uh, pressure. So let me remind you a kind of uh, kid's model for the structure of the Earth, which I think probably most of, most of us know. Uh, the Earth in the center has the core, and that's got two components. The inner core is solid metal, mainly iron. The outer core is liquid. Then surrounding the core, we have the mantle, uh, which is um, predominantly silicate minerals. And then right on the top, as it were, and, uh, is the crust, the rather thin crust on which we all live. Uh, the other point that this slide is making is the way in which uh, 
uh, seismological data has been used to probe uh, the structure of the Earth. Now, we've known that basic idea, the basic features of the structure of the Earth uh, for a long time. We've also known from a number of pieces of evidence uh, the composition of the core. The evidence comes from cosmochemistry, distribution of elements in the cosmos, uh, analysis of meteors, equations of state, learning from seismology, uh, the properties of the materials at various parts in the Earth. Uh, and we know that, as I said a few minutes ago, that the core is iron, alloyed with a small fraction of lighter elements. Now, why is the core important? Uh, it's important for a number of, of uh, uh, really very significant reasons. It's uh, the seat of major global processes. The core, as we'll see in a few minutes, is extremely hot. And the heat coming out from the core drives the convection um, uh, drives the convection in the mantle, which is responsible for plate tectonics, which certainly influences, as we know, dramatically what takes place on the surface of the Earth. Uh, the other, or one other important feature of the core is that convection in the outer core, the liquid part, um, generates the Earth's magnetic field. And the Earth's magnetic field is certainly more than a curiosity, I love showing this slide, the Earth's magnetic field has an absolutely vital role in making life on Earth actually possible. What we're seeing here is a, a solar wind. Again, this is a, a picture that was provided for me by um, MSSL. A, a solar wind coming out. It's, 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 a graph, it's a, an illustration. But the point we're making here is that the Earth's magnetic field protects the Earth from the consequences of that solar wind. So the Earth's core is, knowledge of the Earth's core uh, really is very important. Now, the problem which Alpha and colleagues addressed was the temperatures. So an absolutely key quantity that we need to know. The temperatures at the inner outer core um, boundary and then the outer core mantle boundary. That was absolutely vital knowledge for contemporary geophysics. And they use this very sophisticated quantum mechanics to work out the melting points of iron under the conditions of huge pressure that we know are present in the Earth's core. They measure the melting point by finding the regions at which liquid, which is on the right there of this graphics and solid uh, coexist. So via this very sophisticated procedure, they're able to uh, determine the melting point of iron under these huge conditions of uh, pressure in the Earth's core. And to cut a long story short, this was the model that they came, that they derived for these key temperatures at the inner outer core boundary and the boundary of the outer core and the mantle. So that is key knowledge for geophysics. And as I said earlier, this is an inaccessible system. So this really is an absolutely vital method uh, for deriving this essential knowledge. Now, this work has been going on for quite a long time. And what I'm going to show you now is a headline from the Daily Mirror uh, after one of the earlier papers was published in the journal Nature in the late 1990s. And they were greatly taken by these predictions as to the temperatures of about 5,000 degrees, which are the same temperatures, as, I think, as the surface of the sun. And so they came up with this wonderful headline, Core Water Scorcher. 
Let me say that was the Mirror, October 1990. Now, that's actually, I think, perhaps the first time that results of a computer modelling exercise, um, in, certainly in science, have got a full-page spread in the Daily Mirror. <laughs> anyway, let me go on to my next theme, and I should say here I'm a long way on this next one from my own expertise, but I'm highlighting some work that was provided me by Ian Eames, many other colleagues involved, uh, from the Department of Mechanical Engineering, really just to emphasise that computational modelling is a really key technique in contemporary engineering. And they're concerned with uh, fundamental fluid mechanics, so we need to understand, for instance, how fluids flow around complex uh, shapes. And this can be, I'm sure, as you all know, highly complex. Lower down, we have an example of turbulent flow, an extremely important phenomenon, and one that is actually very difficult in many ways to get to grips with uh, quantitatively. Now, they are doing <coughs> fantastic computational work, but the best computational work, whenever it can be, is tied in with experiment. And so they're also doing experimental studies uh, using this new fluid mechanics uh, laboratory, again, of the way in which complex flows occur uh, around objects. And I'm just going to show you, so it's outside my area of expertise, but three examples of work of this group. This is, a, I thought, a absolutely wonderful one. Uh, this was modelling of the breaking of a tsunami. You can see the graphics on the right-hand side, uh, obviously highly topical in view of the tragedy there was a number of years ago uh, when uh, uh, the tsunami in the uh, Indian Ocean. Uh, and they're able to model this really rather accurately. They can model the breaking of the elevation wave, and very importantly, uh, their models predict this very extensive backflow uh, that you see here, which is one of the major problems uh, observed in the Indian Ocean at tsunami. So then please talk to Ian if you want to learn more about this. But then just illustrating the diversity of their work here is a summary of, again, a very extensive study applying modelling to airborne transmission in hospitals. As you all know, uh, a very important phenomenon. They're able to model this really quite accurately, and the results are providing guidance to reduce uh, infection spread. And if we want to go to an even more medical application, uh, here's work that they've done in collaboration with the Moorfield Eye Hospital concerned with retinal, retinal detachment, uh, which is treated by replacing the vitreous medium in the, in the, the eye by this gas-liquid tamponade. And you need to know, again, the fluid flow properties of that fluid. And again, they've modelled that successfully and made a real serious input into this important uh, medical problem. So absolutely terrific work, again, here at UCL. So the remainder of this talk, I'll kind of come back to home for me and discuss modelling materials, which is my uh, own speciality at the molecular level. Now, here I'm going to highlight the uh, work of uh, a number of colleagues in the chemistry department at UCL. And what we're doing here, we're providing quantum, applying quantum mechanics that I've already uh, alluded to, and also uh, an area we call molecular mechanics, I'll try and explain in a minute, uh, to predict understanding and predicting structures and properties of complex molecules and materials. So what do we want to know about materials at the atomic and molecular level? Well, we want to know the structures, the way in which the atoms 
are arranged in them. They can be arranged in a regular manner, as in a crystal, or in a disordered manner, as in an amorphous material. We want to know what happens on the surfaces. Many very important phenomena take place on the surfaces of materials, uh, so we want to build models for surfaces and for interfaces between two types of material. I mentioned very briefly the area of defects. Solids contain impurities, imperfections, and they can often control many of their most important properties. We want to know how molecules can absorb, can uh, fit inside materials or occupy sites on their surface. Then very ambitiously we may want to use modelling to guide us in the synthesis of new materials, understand the way in which they grow. Nanochemistry, of course, no talk on material science can omit something on the nano theme, but a really fascinating area of contemporary chemistry. We need models for the structure of matter at the nano level, and a very ambitious area that I spent a lot of time on, I won't have probably time to talk about it, reactivity, the way in which molecules react on solids uh, and within their pores. And we want to apply these methods to lots of different systems, to things like oxides and silicates. Silicates are the materials that the Earth's core, uh, sorry, the Earth's mantle and crust are made out of. We want to apply them to semiconductors. We want to apply them to molecular crystals. For example, um, pharmaceutical crystals of pharmaceutical compounds. If I get time, I'll give an example there later on. And of course, a wide range of metals and alloys that we apply these methods too. Now, I don't want to kind of give you a lecture on chemistry. I just want to give you a glimpse of how we try and do this modelling in chemistry. And we use two very general strategies. The first are what I call intratomic potentials. And the idea here is, you know, atoms are nuclei surrounded by electrons. Well, up to a point, we try and partly forget about that. We just say atoms are perhaps rather squashy spheres, and we'll develop models for the way in which these squashy spheres interact with each other. And over the last kind of 60 years, we've become very good at that. And once you've got these models for the way in which these atoms interact with each other, lots of kind of computing games you can play. You can run downhill in energy, just say, you know, you know you interact, now just find the lowest energy way of arranging yourselves. You can imagine you're Isaac Newton, and you can use Newton's classical equations of motion to work out how atoms will move around, given a certain amount of energy. And then you can, as I say, you roll dice to generate ensembles. You can generate lots of different configurations of your atoms and then try and calculate properties. But then the other thing you can do, which I've already referred to, you really can say, we'll use the, our very basic knowledge of how electrons behave in molecules and solids. Schrodinger equations summarise that, and we'll calculate these properties in detail. Well, we're back to challenges. Instead of grand challenges, we're going to have key challenges, and I probably won't get through all these, but the first will be, can we predict the structures of crystals and nanoparticles? Then we'll look and see, well, can we do some guidance for synthesis? Then a very important problem in both chemistry and chemical engineering, can we look, understand at the molecular level how crystals grow? And then the one I won't have time for probably is uh, how we determine the mechanisms whereby uh, molecules react on solids. So let's look at the first one. Can we predict the structures of crystals and nanoparticles? And we're going to start off here with a quote. This came from an article by John Moddix, 
who for many years was the editor of Nature. He published a very provocative News and Views in 1988, in which he said one of the continuing scandals in the physical sciences is that it remains impossible to predict the structure of even the simplest crystalline solid from a knowledge of its composition. So he's saying if you know what atoms are present in a solid, you couldn't predict their structure. Now, when that statement was made, it actually was pretty wildly inaccurate. So it wasn't terribly good science. It was fantastic journalism, though, because so, it uh, stimulated a huge response. And in fact, it was really very good because it stimulated the field. One of the earlier responses was a review by David Price and myself in Nature in 1990, in which we partly answered this uh, uh, provocative comment of... Uh, Maddox, and then a couple of years ago, Scott Woodley and myself kind of looked at where we were following the Maddox challenge uh, 20 years on. And the answer, the position is now we actually can do a pretty good job in many cases of predicting the structures of crystals. I'm just going to give you one or two illustrations and going to give you some of the ideas that we try and use in predicting structures. The problem is Crystals are complex systems. They've got lots of atoms in. There are vast numbers of ways of arranging them. How are we going to decide what the best one is? So um, one approach we can use is what we call genetic algorithms. It's a really clever, neat idea, and it's based, like lots of scientific ideas, are on analogies. It's an analogy with evolutionary theories. What you say is you've got a population. You get lots of different ways of arranging your atoms, and that's a kind of population. And then you allow these populations to pass through successive generations. But the possibility of a structure procreating, passing on its features to the next generations, depends on some rough and ready measure of how good that structure is. And that's one of the key features. But I say it's a really neat idea. And in a minute, I'll show you that it works. And I'm going to apply this to uh, a type of material that I've been interested in for many years. Uh, these are systems called zeolites. They are silicates, so the basic topology is simple. They're built up out of tetrahedra. You can see they're silicon surrounded by four oxygen atoms. Then you link the tetrahedra together by sharing corners, and then you start to build up these lovely networks. Uh, but the important thing is, though, they're open networks. They can chain, chain sheets and cages and channels. So there are lots of different structures here. We're interested in them because they're because of the beautiful crystal architectures, but there's a great deal we can do with them. They are fantastic catalysts. That means they promote chemical reactions. I can't go into all their catalytic properties, but they're absolutely key in the petrochemicals industry. For instance, they break down tars into molecules of about the right size for petrol, so they're absolutely vital for in many ways for energy security. Lots of other catalytic properties. They're also used in very important area in industry, gas separation. These channels are about the same size as many molecules, so you can use them to sieve out, separate one molecule from another. And they are, an older example is ion exchange. In fact, a lot of them are still used in detergents. I'm going to give you one example now uh, of a prediction of a structure using this genetic algorithm method. It's, it isn't really a prediction. It's just showing that the method works to a known structure, sodalite. So I'll let it run again. And what's happening in the early stages, this is this genetic algorithm phase. It's, it's playing around 
finding better and better way as, as we go through these successive generations of organizing the atoms, then it ends up with a very good way and then does a kind of final push downhill in energy and generates that structure. So lots of other examples I could give you, but I want to move on to another approach. And this is using ideas from topology. And I to probably lots of people in this audience know more about topology than I do, but topology is all about uh, the way in which different shapes relate to each other. Now, crystal structures contain complex shapes, and so for a long, long time, topology has been used to generate possible models for structures, but this pro process was taken one step further uh, in very, I think, important work by Rob Bell and co-workers. Rob is now in the chemistry department at UCL. I just want to illustrate the relationship between topology and a crystal structure. We've got topology on the right-hand side. You can think of it as a way of connecting vertices or a way of connecting polyhedra, but that's a kind of mathematical construct. You can turn that, as it were, into a model of a crystal structure. You put, a, in this case, a silicon atom at each of those vertices. You put an oxygen atom along the edges, and then that is it's a crystal structure. In fact, it's a crystal structure of a well-known material. Now, I can't go into any details, but I say Rob Bell of Platt and many other colleagues use this to predict entirely new structures and, moreover, structures that were calculated to be stable. And this is a beautiful example of one of these new predicted structures. It's a lovely topology out of 12 and 8 rings. That is predicted to be stable. This is work about a couple of years ago. It remains a challenge to see if we can synthesize it. Just a few words later on about how we might respond to that charge. Now, final example, again, work from chemistry department. This is work of Sally Price, uh, Derek Tocker, and a student, Ashley Hume. Uh, and they're, again, trying to predict, they're trying to predict the structures of crystals made up out of quite complex molecules. And they use actually a rather simple idea. They systematically try and pack these molecules together in lots of different ways, and they find out the best way of doing it. And they had a really fantastic success story uh, about five years ago. They're very much built on that. It concerned this material, 5-fluorouracil. Now, if I get time, I'll say a few more words about that material, that molecule, in a few minutes. It's an important pharmaceutical compound. This is the crystal structure that was known for it for many years. You see here, it's a molecule, and there are quite interesting ways in which the molecules uh, fit together. That was the only one that was known. They then predicted, using their methods, but there was another way in which you could pack these molecules together in this crystal. Here it is. And um, they, that hadn't been seen before. But then, in some excellent experimental work, they were able to grow form two. So that was a real prediction. They tried lots of different solvents uh, for this. And they found that nitromethane, which is a very dry solvent, that succeeded in growing that crystal structure. Now, if I get a few minutes, I'll explain how we've solved the problem of why they need this particular solvent to grow that crystal. Before I do that, a word about nanochemistry. I promised you to say something about nanochemistry. So here is some of work in my group on zinc sulfide, important semiconductor compound. And it's got a lovely nanochemistry. These are the structures predicted by uh, kind of some of the methods I've been very briefly describing for the way in which zinc and sulfur atoms are arranged at the nano scale. And the beautiful open structures, they look absolutely nothing like 
the crystal structure of zinc sulfide. And they're all open, bubble-like structures. This one on the right here is absolutely amazing. It's a big, open, bubble structure, and so it doesn't remotely resemble the way in which the atoms are arranged in crystalline zinc sulfide. That's the way in which they would be arranged in crystalline zinc sulfide for a cluster about as big as the one I just showed you. That, our work showed, has higher energy. So the arrangement of atoms at the nano level is quite different from that which you get when you've got very large numbers of atoms in crystals. Here's an even more amazing structure. Now you've got 60 zinc, 60 sulfur atoms, and they arrange themselves in an onion-like uh, uh, structure. You've got a little cluster inside a big cluster. So you're getting, say, these nested onion structures. Again, nothing like uh, the arrangement in the bulk cluster. I'll skip this one. Now, let me go on in the remaining few minutes to my second challenge, that is, can we guide synthesis and understand the factors that control synthesis? One just brief illustration, uh, and we're going back to these zeolites, these wonderful complex crystal structures that have all these applications in industry. The way in which we synthesize them is to quite a large extent a black art. They contain silicon and aluminium, so we chuck sources of silicon and aluminium uh, into a kind of synthesis brew. We add caustic soda. Uh, and then, very interestingly, we add organic molecules, big molecules. And what we think happens is the zeolite, all these silicons and aluminiums begin to link together and they kind of crystallize, they grow around these organic molecules that we chuck into the synthesis gel. So some time ago, uh, one of my colleagues, Dewey Lewis, working in collaboration with Dave Willock, uh, decided he would try and get, this is saying is a black heart, but he'd try and give some guidance to it. He'd try and predict the kind of organic molecule that you needed to grow a particular zeolite structure. And he had fantastic success. He grew molecules on the computer. So he started off with something simple, like the template you see there. It's just a methane molecule. All kinds of chemical groups. But then started to, the computer starts to fit them on. It manipulates them. And it ends up with a prediction of a molecule that will sit nice and snugly inside the target material. And then you say, well, that is probably going to be a good template. And it worked. Uh, the very first example, that molecule there successfully predicted, synthesized uh, that particular cage that I'm showing you. And here was a real fantastic success. Um, uh, this lovely cage here, known as Levine Structure Cage, we predicted by this computational method that the molecule there on the right would be really good for synthesizing it, and it worked. It synthesized it absolutely like a dream. So we can use computer modeling to guide synthesis. Now, in the remaining two or three minutes, I'm just going to look at this third challenge. Can we gain a molecular level understanding of crystal growth? Now, I should say crystal growth, one of the understanding it's one of the really big challenges in physical chemistry and chemical engineering. Now, I'm going to go back to the theme I had earlier, the work of Sally Price. But here's some contributions from Said Hamad. Uh, who worked with me, and they're concerned with this phenomenon of polymorphism. Now, uh, the molecular crystals, crystals when you pack molecules together, often can grow in lots of different structures. There are lots of different ways of packing them together. Now, this in the pharmaceutical industry 
can be a disaster. A pharmaceutical is a solid compound. Regulatory approval only applies to one particular solid form. And what has sometimes happened during production of a pharmaceutical is that it starts to crystallise in a different form, not in the one for which it's been given regulatory approval. So, so this has been one of the really big problems in the pharmaceutical industry. So there's a great deal of incentive for understanding this phenomenon. Now I'm going to go back to this system 5, sorry, uracil, important pharmaceutical compound, chemotherapy for 50 years. I remind you that Sally's group predicted this new form and there are, just very briefly, to draw your attention to, sorry, I better go back, to important structural principles here. You look at that thing that I've ringed there, those are fluorine atoms close together. And I just remember that. Um, that's a feature of this form. Look at this one. You see those dotted lines? Those are what we call hydrogen bonds, which are holding two molecules together. So those are the kind of two structural signatures. Now, form one, you, make, you can grow that from water. Form two, you only grow from nitromethane. Now, let's look at what you do when you do a simulation. You look at how the molecule behaves first in water. And you can see here this kind of greeny-blue thing. That's the fluorine atom, and it's not interacting with the water. And what you find is if you have species in water that don't interact with the water, then they start to interact with each other. It's what we call the hydrophobic effect. So when you have this molecule in water, as you allow the system to evolve, the molecules come together, but they come together with their fluorine atoms pointing to each other. And that's just what you see in form one. So what's driving the formation of that first form is what's happening very early on as the molecules begin to come together, and that's driven by the way in which the molecules interact with the solvent. Now let's look at nitromethane. Here it is. It actually doesn't interact with the surrounding molecules at all much. Nitromethane uh, doesn't particularly interested in interacting with this uh, molecule, and so the molecules interact with themselves. And you can see at the top, you see those two dotted lines bringing these molecules together, and that's just the feature that we saw in form two. And form two grows out of nitromethane. So again, what's happening really, really early on is driving the polymorphic outcome. So what we've shown here is we understand why you get these different polymorphs, and they depend on what's happening in the solvent. Now, fortunately, I have to skip the last three slides. I just want to say that of the chemistry part of this talk, lots of different people have contributed. Many thanks to them, and uh, we've been well-funded by a number of agencies. I'll stop at that point, but I hope I've given you some glimpse into the way in which the power of modern computers is used of material. And there's 
to actually do anything serious. Um, so where, where else in chemistry, actually, there is not <clears throat> enough power to... Sorry, I don't, were you, you're referring to the use of uh, computer modeling in, in biomolecular modeling. I mean, there is a huge, I mean, that's not my area and I didn't have time to talk about it, but it is a hugely important and very uh, active area of the field. Um, essentially, using the same kind of techniques that people like me use in modeling materials, people use those techniques in modeling complex biomolecules, proteins, DNA, and interactions uh, between molecules. I mean, there are huge challenges, uh, challenges intrinsic in the complexity of the structures that they're looking at. Uh, the other, one of the other major, I say it's not my area of expertise, but I know that one of the other major areas of challenge for computational modeling of those systems is understanding the interaction between the molecules and the solvent. I mean, I just alluded to that topic uh, when, at the end when I was talking about our fluorouracil. Uh, but it's, it's important in certain areas of materials modeling, absolutely crucial in biomolecular modeling, and it's, a not, it's not at all an easy problem. But methods are very, very widely used in biomolecular modeling, as widely used as they are in the materials field that I've discussed. So thanks for that. Um, actually, uh, would, would you mind if I continued a little yeah. with the same question? Because I would like you to answer just a little bit further that uh, one of the main questions about biomolecular systems is that they're often very much larger than molecules. Where do we stand these days in terms of actual computer power that's available for addressing these very large-scale, multi-scale problems? Well, we stand actually in pretty good shape. I mean, one of the... Uh, aspects that has made this field so exciting to work with over my career has been the uh, exponential growth in computer power, um, which still continues. So you really now can tackle very, very complex systems, uh, systems with many thousands of atoms, um, even millions of atoms, uh, using the, the simpler intratomic potential approach, but even with quantum mechanical methods, which really get to the heart of how the electrons behave in the system, you can now tackle large systems. So there's a great deal you can be done, and the horizons of the field continue to expand because of the growth in computer power. We have a question here. Excuse me. Uh, Bill Langdon, um, you talked briefly about your work with genetic algorithms and you were talk skipped over the cost function, but I got the impression there was more you wanted to say about that. Yeah, um, I just skip over rather a lot actually, but um, the cost there are a number of different ones you can use. You can use very simple ones, though it's just based in, in crystal structure prediction on uh, expected coordination numbers and bond lengths, or you can use more sophisticated ones of very uh, approximate estimates of the lattice or cohesive energy. And we've used both in the type of work I was describing. But, I mean, you're absolutely right. The, the choice of cost function in the GA approach is, is absolutely key to its uh, efficacy. Okay. One last question, then. Um, 
Would the development of the computational models be detrimental to the development of uh, analytical solutions to some of these problems? Well, one should use analytical solutions when you can. There's no conflict between uh, computer modeling and analytical solutions. Um, we use computer models when the systems are of that complexity, which the ones, all the ones that I was talking about, uh, that, that um, one can't use analytical models. You may be able to use analytical models for some of the very broader features, but if you want to get into the details, for example, if you want to do the kind of predictive work that Alpha did, calculating those temperatures in the Earth's core, you need this kind of sophisticated simulation method. But analytical models, <laughs> these aren't a replacement for analytical models. They can, analytical models continue to be of great importance. Um, I, I think we should close now because yes, there's a class coming around. in. Let's thank uh, Professor Catlow once more. To find out more about UCL, please visit us at itunes.ucl.ac.uk. Thank you.